Hi, and welcome to the Brown Women Health Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Shamir Ali. Shamir is a public health researcher at the NYU School of Public Health, where he conducts research on lifestyle behaviors and non-communicable diseases in multi-ethnic, Asian, and immigrant populations. Shamir has authored over 50 publications and has conducted research in several countries, including the US, China, Australia, and Pakistan. His work focuses on developing community-sensitive and community-engaged approaches to health research, making him an expert in his field. Today's topic is the effect of family structure on diet patterns, and we are thrilled to have Shamir join us to share his insights on this important issue. With his expertise in health equity, food security, and eating behaviors, we're eager to hear Shamir's perspective on how family dynamics impact our diet choices. So without further ado, let's welcome Shamir Ali to our podcast. Oh, I appreciate the kind intro. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, uh, yeah, I've uh, been quite interested in the experiences of diet and interpersonal family relationships uh, among Asian and South Asian um, immigrants and second generation communities. And so uh, certainly quite a passion topic of mine. And I'm quite excited to uh, share that with you all today. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I know you uh, just completed your dissertation um, at NYU with this research. So can you just talk a little bit about what your dissertation was about, what you ended up really focusing on, and maybe why you focused on that particular topic? Yeah, so my journey to my research, as is the case with most people who do PhDs, is a very winding one that's kind of like been accumulation of my various kind of side quests throughout undergrad and like um, other experiences. So I think I uh, started to learn how interested I am in food. Um, just as a person, like growing up, I just knew like food, I fixated on food uh, a lot, you know, in terms of my, where, wherever I would travel, wherever I would uh, go and meet people. I think this is sort of the Lahorian me. It's also, uh, if, for those of you who know Lahore, it's a big food city. So every time we would go uh, home to Pakistan, that was what all of our conversations with my family would be about. Like, where's the next, where's the next food gig, right? So um, I was kind of socialized into this hyper food uh, environment. And I think it was that alongside a sep separate thing that I uh, was diagnosed with, which is diabetes. So I'm actually type 1 diabetic myself. Um, and so uh, as a diabetic, um, at the since the age of five, um, I've had to really be hyper aware about everything I eat, its impact on my sugar levels. And so that's caused me to get this sort of sixth sense about like carbs and stuff. Like I can look at something, I can tell you like that has 40 carbs. And so like, I'll know these things. And I think that, that coupled awareness of like being socialized into food so much, and then also being so aware of the way in which my food influences my health kind of then facilitated this passion towards uh, dietary research. And I think um, I've been quite interested in sort of social dynamics and, um, you know, having, um, being a very sort of like, quote unquote, global citizen myself, having, you know, grew, like born in the US and I moved to Australia and I uh, did my high schooling there and my um, higher education. Um, then I moved back from my higher education in the US. Um, <clears throat> I got a chance to really be exposed to a diverse range of cultures and experiences. Um, it was in Australia also where I 
uh, learned Chinese and began a lot of my sort of Chinese journey um, and learning about the Chinese uh, social health and dietary experience, then contextualized with my own as a South Asian, then added another layer of complexity to me. And it just all seemed so complex and interesting and ripe for investigation. And so that's when that led me to my PhD, focusing on the experiences of young Asian Americans uh, like myself um, and looking at the lens in which family members uh, kind of interact with the foods we eat and kind of shape our behaviors. That's so cool. I'm just curious, like, uh, so where you were in Australia, was there a huge, like, Chinese community? Or, like, how did you pick up Chinese being in Australia? Yeah, I get this question a lot, too. Um, It was, uh, there's a lot of, I think this is actually uh, very relevant um, to sort of the Asian diaspora experiences. You will have a lot of both first generation and second generation communities. Um, In other words, uh, communities uh, of individuals who would, who are born in, uh, the Asian country of origin or born in the U.S. In Australia, what I found was there was a very high portion of first-generation um, Asian immigrants. Um, Australia, I, I believe now is close to 15% Asian, which is a much, but uh, in the U.S. is actually much lower. So I was very much exposed to uh, a lot of um, sort of Asian influences. And so ultimately, I think that's where um, you know, it was through that exposure, that immersion, being uh, having a lot of Chinese friends, and then working in China for a while, I was able to kind of you know pick up Chinese, and I use it professionally a lot. I uh, I've done some work on uh, salt reduction in China, and um, continue to do some collaborations with some universities in China at the moment. That's so cool. I yeah, I think that's cool that not only are you able to pick up the language, but you know, using it professionally, I think is a whole other like level so that that's amazing um yeah thanks for sharing that yeah I actually um took notes and read the paper that was sent and I thought that it was very interesting how you like it was saying that when you have a larger amount of educational attainment you're more likely to meet the dietary recommendations but that family size does not have a consistency with the trends mm-hmm. um could you speak more about that regarding like whether you're a young adult living alone, whether you are living with the elderly and you have to do caregiving duties, or even just a smaller family size compared to being alone versus living in a large family? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I think what was really revealing in in the research that I did was that um, it sort of challenged our assumptions on the influence of family in the sense that, um, you know, it's not everything about your family members or your family structure that will play a role in shaping your dietary behaviors for the good or, or for the bad. Um, there are some things that are more influential than others. And, you know, just if you just boil it down to simple things like family size or family structure, it may not actually be as significant than some of the other things that I saw some in some of my later papers. Um, but with respect to family structure, I think, um, you know, we think about the fact that a lot of Asian Americans will live in large multi-generational households. Some will live in, in those environments where you have your uh, grandparents, your dada, nani, all of them living together. Um, and some Asian Americans, especially young adults, may not. Some, they might be living, uh, you know, they might be moving to a city uh, to do, you know, their work at a startup. They're going to California or they're starting med school. We, like in some of the qualitative research that I did, that, those were the type of the profiles of South Asians that we, and Asian Americans that we interviewed. So I think 
what we learned essentially is that um, you know, just the actual presence, the number of family members that you live with uh, may not have an influence because of the fact that we, in our day and age, interact with family members in different ways. And so that's what we learned. It wasn't actually just the presence of them. It was how you interacted with them, how frequently you interact with them, what emotions you felt when interacting with them, all those things that kind of define our family dynamics besides a simple presence. Um, so I think that was very enlightening in the sense that you might just have that one or to family members in your life, but they may be very, very powerful influences or vice versa. You may have so many family members you live with or are exposed with, but just because of your dynamic with them, or perhaps you might your their influence might be diluted in the context of other family members in the household, uh, you may not be getting that uh, sort of big influence. Um, with respect to education, I think that's another thing we uh, observed was quite interesting in the sense that, you know, we often assume, right, that higher education uh, is associated with healthier eating, um, higher socioeconomic status. Um, and to to the, like, in most regards, that is true. But I think, um, and I suppose this was less explored in my dissertation, but this is kind of more informed by my uh, exposure to other sort of dietary research and Asian American health research. Um, is that it may not exactly be the case. Um, and I, I give some examples. A lot of people with high education live very high-paced lifestyles. Doctors, uh, lawyers, engineers, right? Uh, you have like four hours a day to kind of chill and eat something. So you're going to go for that protein bar. You're not going to go for that like high, you know, you know, uh, time and effort intensive uh, meal, uh, you know, that's made of like unprocessed foods and grilled chicken, you might go and get that bowl from Chipotle that has like grilled chicken, great, but then that also still has a lot of salt and sodium. So you see the education and diet link kind of complexify because of the fact that time and effort play so much of a role in how we eat as young adults, particularly. And I think that's now a big area of focus of mine is kind of how do we prioritize young adults to eat healthy in a low time, low effort kind of um, environment. I was going to say that I think that that's so interesting because it kind of just shows that you don't practice what you preach, right? Hmm. Like um, Amika and I are both going into um, healthcare and I'm sure she's had her handful of experiences where, um, you know, like when you're shadowing or you're just like following the lifestyle of a physician and it's very common for them to say like, oh, like we recommend this amount of fresh fruits, vegetables, healthy grains throughout the day. But then when observing their own diet throughout the day, like you said, it's more like protein bars, like maybe like yogurt packs, like something that's very on the go. So they can't even prioritize their health as much because they are focusing on their patients. So I think it's a very like, like you said, trying to find the link between the two is a little difficult because every everyone's situation is different. Some lifestyles are more, um, I guess, busy than others, even within the medical field. Um, but that's definitely something that's always been very interesting to me is that I would like to, in the future, be able to also practice what I'm telling my patients to do and hopefully not have to skimp on my own um, dietary patterns. Right. Just to follow up on one thing that you mentioned about health education, did you um, or are you thinking about developing certain resources for um, youth, Asian American youth to follow specific to diets? I know like specifically to something like diabetes, there's certain things or protocols that you should follow. Um, and like, if not, like, what are those ways that you think, like, what are the most effective health education resources from your experience? Um, do you think 
could actually make a makes a higher impact on youth? Yeah. So this is a really interesting question. And this is what is sort of the main focus of my work now. So I think I can uh, reflect on two aspects. So the first is the family aspect. And I think that's where a lot of my work was able to reveal how powerful of a role these family members in the lives of Asian American adults have, South Asians, East Asians, Southeast Asians across the board. Um, and so really leveraging that sort of disaggregated nuances of, of those findings from my uh, analyses of quantitative and qualitative data, I essentially at the end of my dissertation mapped out three main ways of family involvement um, that should be leveraged as part of family-based interventions. Um, in other words, really leveraging these socio-ecological interpersonal influences in the lives of Asian Americans to foster sustainable, impactful dietary behavior change, right? Um, especially in an environment where, you know, it can be hard for young adults to prioritize healthy eating on their own. So getting help from the people in their lives can be a, a big, big factor um, in some of the same ways as it is for older adults, which has been the big focus of Asian American research full stop for the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years. It's been really leaning towards older adult populations, I think, you know, looking at geriatric care, um, caregiver um, and stuff. So I, all, I that was one of the reasons I wanted to do my research is I felt just young adults, they were kind of lacking in this kind of research discourse. But more specifically in the family component, interventionally, the three um, mechanisms that I sort of I outlined was family-led, um, family-supported, and then family-wide interventions. And so each intervention is meant to leverage the specific dynamic that would exist in a, in a family, right? So you may have a family where it's very interconnected. And the foods that I eat are the, the same, the foods that my mother and my brother and everybody eats. We all influence each other's diets very heavily. Um, and importantly, the reasons why I may eat, like the foods that I like are very similar to that of my mother and father. Um, and brothers. And so you see that especially in places of uh, perhaps lower acculturation in areas where um, young Asian American young adults may be eating the same sort of desi meals in their everyday life as their uh, parents, for example. Um, here, a family-wide intervention may be helpful because you are considering the family unit as very interdependent, interconnected. So fundamentally, if you want to improve the diet of the young adult, you must also intervene in the diet of the others in the family. Um, then you have a situation where it's a little bit more, it's a little bit different where you might have a young adult whose family members are really involved actively in, you know, maybe the mother's cooking a lot in the household or bringing food. Uh, we've had participants who might be studying in a different state for med school and their mother comes every weekend and brings in this whole pot of biryani and it's like, here's for the rest of your week, right? So you might have situations where and a family member is a big enabler or a proactive influence on the diet, but perhaps that they're still a little bit disconnected or perhaps the dietary behaviors of the mother are still very different from the young adult, in which case the mother still plays a powerful role, right? So in here, a family-led intervention may be helpful where you engage the mother and ask the mother to be that primary agent of change, right? How can we train uh, the mother, the father, the sibling who's the primary influence to, inf to change the diet of the young adult without necessarily also having to change the diet of the mother, the father, the sibling, uh, because it just might be so different. And then the last type was family supported. And this is where the dietary behaviors and influence are the least. And, you know, it might just be a much more uh, you know, a much more like um, less proactive influence or less significant influence. Um, and in here, in this situation, maybe involving 
the an, an interventionist, a nutritionist, or somebody outside the family member outside the family might be more helpful to kind of intervene in the young adult's diet. This is where a family member might support an intervention. They might provide indirect encouragement. They might provide material support, but they may they don't have the burden on their shoulders to be that agent of change because maybe they're just not as influential as is the case in another another household. So that's where you have a family supported intervention. Um, so I think really playing around with those interventional styles, testing them out, seeing what benefits they bring um, is is sort of a great area of exploration. Be, and before I finish, I'll say one more thing, which is that um, aside from that, I'm actually doing a different study that looks at social media as an intervention for South Asian young adults. And we're actually testing out uh, Facebook chatbots and developing that into an, a tailored educational intervention so that we can really, like based on a, a preliminary survey, if it's the issue is time or cooking skills or grocery skills, we provide a tailored education by chatbot. So that's still in development, but we'll probably get that. Uh, we got some funding for it, so it'll be in the summer where we'll be testing that out. Mm-hmm. That is so cool, especially the social media one. Um, given mm-hmm. that our page is like a social media based South Asian education, <laughs> like I think that's really cool. I didn't even that's really I didn't even know that's something people are working on. Like very cool. Um, and also just speaking to your study. So I think our account's been following your Twitter for a while and I've seen, um, I think you had a, you had a call out for people to interview for um, the research you were doing. So I remember me and my brother actually were part of that. We were interviewed. Oh, by, really? Uh, I think some students involved in your research. And so I remember um, being asked questions about like, like the yogurt brand, like not just the yogurt I eat, but the brand and like all these specifics. Oh, wait a minute. I remember, I well, I mean, I I recall you actually, but I, I can't like for ethics, I can't talk about it, but I know you've, you've yeah. You, oh, you, you okay. Drank. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I remember like, and then after like me and my brother didn't talk about it intentionally, like the two, until his was done too, I think. And so yeah, yeah, after yeah. that, um, I remember both of us were talking and we were like, Oh, like so many things can be so similar between what we, even though me and my brother have very different dietary preferences. Like I love like my Punjabi food. He doesn't like all of that. But then there's also that like connection of like, we are in the same household and then we're eating like really similar snacks or like other, like I think nutrient related nutrients, but that's funny that you recall that. I yeah, that's um, so, I know which study you participated in. It was the one where we, it was actually my dissertation study. That you oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's where we interviewed the young adult and the family members. Oh my God. That's yeah. so funny. Okay. okay. Yeah. Wow. Now I have to like, I wonder if, I hope that's that great. was <laughs> People look out for the papers. Yeah, no, I'm going to, um, that's the other thing that I, I really want to do is make sure young adults have a hold of the research and kind of understand it and see what, yeah. you know, what exists. So I'll be sharing that out soon. Hopefully. Awesome. I'm excited to see that. Um, yeah. And so for speaking on this type of like family dynamics, what do you think or like, what have you seen as ways that we can help bring up this conversation as students or as the new generation of family members when we do not have that large of a say in group dynamics. Mm, That's tricky, right? So you might be in households where you really just don't have that much control over the food that's made um, or the food you consume or 
you might have, um, you know, very pushy family members when it comes to diet. And I think that's something that I definitely saw in my research. And I think we see um, in other sociological research of, um, you know, it being difficult to foster change. And I think this is actually across different types of health outcomes, you know, um, especially in Asian dynamics, I feel like family members can often be very rigid. Um, I think rigidity often is, I think this is something uniquely South Asian in some respects. It's often informed by religion as well. Um, so you have a very, the South, the, the diets we consume as South Asians um, are really defined oftentimes by our religions. Um, I think in a way that doesn't occur in a lot of other cultures, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, all of these have very strong, uh, you know, principles related to diet. And I think what that occurs then is, uh, that then in, that connects with our family members, the way in which they uh, may want to manifest their influence or kind of, you know, their emphasis behind it or their motivations behind it, right? So you may be in households where one person is vegetarian and another person isn't or one person eats meat and, you know, or, you know, uh, halal food or not halal foods. Um, so I think in those environments, you know, you may choose as a young adult to not align with the same religious preferences or cultural or dietary preferences as your family member. Navigating that is then understandably quite difficult. Um, I think that's where, uh, and I think this is what we saw in our, uh, you know, our research too, is communication and strong interpersonal, uh, you know, the, the, the emotional component of the interaction plays a significant role in the degree to which the family member plays an influence. Um, so thinking about, you know, how, how can I communicate my dietary preferences um, and to my family members? How can I uh, ensure that, you know, my family members are not being an unhealthy dietary influence and kind of being more proactive in stopping unhealthy dietary influences and leveraging those that are perhaps healthy as well. Because that's another thing that we really saw is that we saw both play out, healthy and unhealthy dietary influences. So I think it's just really knowing about the uniqueness of your family uh, members, um, you know, experiences, their dietary habits of their own. And I think just kind of you know, working, uh, you know, building those strong connections with them, but then also thinking about uh, the the factors that may be involved in why they are being an influence in the way they are, the cultural, religious uh, realities that, that, that might be above their heads um, that are sort of influencing them too. This kind of ties into another question that we were going to ask, but uh, so do you believe that using the process of like educating them would be a good way to, you know, get to how to explain like proper dietary recommendations, like, instead of just directly bringing up the conversation, actually trying to show them maybe research or numbers or something like that, saying that South Asians are predisposed to like, hypertension, diabetes, like all these you know, very common cases that you see within, um, especially within the like, middle to middle age to older adults. Um, do you think that that's a good way to approach it? Like having to try to start that conversation? Yeah, so I think there are, there are two dimensions to it. So I'll start with young adults, because I think the way in which we want to uh, encourage healthy diets um, is, of course, will, will likely have to be very different for young adults and older adults. But I think both are, you know, especially when you in the context of family-based interventions, are very important to consider. So when it comes to young adults, I think 
what I think I've realized in my work is that, you know, telling people you want to eat healthy because it'll, you want to eat good because it'll make you healthy and li- make you live longer uh, sometimes won't be the best approach, right? Like they're, they're, you're just going to get people rolling their eyes. Like, oh, sure. Okay. Right. Like I'm me eating this like McDonald's today is not going to have an app, like an influence, right? Like I, this is something that happens when I'm like 60, right? And so you're talking to like, because of the nature of non-communicable diseases, they're progressive and then they feel so long-term far out. So one angle is definitely for young adults in their health communication is to show the important health ramifications of, okay, you consuming that unhealthy food right now, you're you lacking physical activity. You may not see the impact now, but it is progressive. And I think one of the um, you know, big things we share is that for Asian Americans, um, especially South Asians, right, uh, the rate of diag- the, the age, the average age of diagnosis of diabetes, heart disease is much younger. So it's about 10 years younger than um, white Americans. Um, in a recent study that was, this was specific to diabetes and this was specific to South Asians, actually. Um, and so, you know, showing that is like, okay, you know, you might think this is a long-term thing, but, you know, your dietary habits now has an influence. But that's just one ang- angle. I think another thing to, that's a barrier to many of us to eat healthy is time, energy, effort. All these things are real life considerations that, you know, uh, can't be ignored, I feel, um, because it's easier to somebody to switch out that Oreo for a carrot. But who's going to do that? Right. So you have to then think about like, OK, I want to go and eat, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A because it's right on the way of my work. Um, and yeah, like that's convenient for me. I don't have time. I have so many things going on. I'm stressed. Mental health. All these other things are going on in our lives and health. Like diet is like on the bottom of my list. So that's where I think my social media intervention, one of the our four modules that we're looking at is cooking skills, grocery skills. And then we have two other modules on uh, attitudes. So one is on uh, trying to encourage people as young adults and South Asians to prior- prioritize healthy eating. And then the link between diet and health. Um, and But specifically for the cooking and grocery skills, which is what, we emer- what emerges some of the key barriers for uh, young adults, um, we are really f- pushing into the idea that, you know, this can be low time, low effort. Um, you don't have to sacrifice the little joys you get in life from eating that, you know, Twinkie, right? You can you can still find that joy and you can still find it in a way that uh, you're still able to optimize your health. It's just I think we have to kind of think about the realities of why people eat unhealthy beyond simply that they may not realize it's like has a health impact. So I think that's what I'm hoping that the young adult dietary education discourse includes more of. Um, And then I'll quickly touch upon for older adults, right? Um, In those communities, right, you have these very oftentimes, uh, you know, South Asian older adults um, will be, many of them, not all of them, of course, will be confined to very specific staples of South Asian cuisine. Uh, Dal, chawal, they'll have those kind of foods in their life, uh, even if they're here for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, So working with those very oftentimes rigid dietary uh, customs, practices, patterns, um, and finding small, subtle ways to incorporate healthy eating, right? So I'm in, am I bringing like the type of sugar you bring, uh, the type of milk you bring for the chai, right? All these things, you know, bringing those in. And I think this is where the child um, in an interpersonal setting, in a family dynamic, has a lot of leverage. They know what 
the, the, the but you know what your father likes you know what your mother likes you know her quirks right in a way that a doctor may not and so you will be able to leverage those quirks and intricacies and complexities of the human reality to kind of find very subtle ways of bringing in that healthy influence so i think it's the subtlety and the appreciation of the nuances that go into why we eat what we eat is sort of the next area of innovation for both young adult and older adult uh, dietary interventions that's really that's really interesting on how like the generations are like broken down and they have like very different I think interventions in a sense um, and like I know you just spoke about it like uh, like two questions back but I think the religious aspect I thought was very interesting because I know as a sick like person I went to um, the Gurdwara in Canada and they have a huge sick population and one of the signs that they had up in their like Lunger Hall which is like this community meal um, area um, and people basically go there and everyone gets free meals and it's like really yummy food um, but the the sign there at, at this Canada one this huge Gurdwara was this this plate and it showed like a breakdown of what you should have and how much you should have of each mm. thing and I thought that was the first time I've seen something like this and I thought that was really cool because it felt very much personalized to our community it had the exact foods that are served in that kitchen usually like it's not I guess like it's very specific and like the portions were like something that seemed very reasonable and it had a little breakdown of like why this portion is like this and I took a picture of it because I thought it was so cool and I feel like they need to incorporate that at like all the sick temples uh, across North America um so yeah I just wanted That's to share so that to hear. So, yeah mm. yeah so I guess another question on that front is what are maybe like some specific things regarding South Asian diets that you yourself found very surprising while conducting this research? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Let me think about this. Um, so my dissertation itself, so I think this, I will talk a little bit about some of my uh, research prior to the dissertation, which was really focused more on South Asians. And actually now some of my current research is also going back to South Asians. Um, so we did a study that essentially involved analyzing the dietary drivers of uh, second generation South Asian Americans who are between the ages of 18 to 25. And what we essentially did is we mapped out, literally mapped out uh, their, uh, the, the different reasons why they eat what they eat, whether it be friends, family, etc. Um, and so this involved a a new method that we developed and also published called Virtual Free Listing Informed Mind Mapping. It's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially involved these really colorful maps. Um, and in the process, we learned a little, like not a little, a lot about the dietary complexities of the South Asian young adult experience. Um, you know, I think one thing that stood out to me and something I relate to too is um, Thai food and Southeast Asian food um, is a big kind of... Uh, it's become almost a staple for many South Asian young adults when it comes to kind of craving a non-desi food that kind of gives you that energy of that spice, that tang, that excitement, um, but not being desi at the same time because you've, you've had enough of that sort of kimanan. Uh, you want something else. Um, so a lot of, you know, consuming Thai food and that also being something that uh, was a pathway to encourage diversification of diets within the household, right? My father may not be open to having udon, right? But he might be open to having 
uh, red curry or green curry from that Thai restaurant that's down the street. So finding ways of expanding one's own and one's parents' diets through leveraging the flavor profiles that exist in South Asian cuisine in comparison to others, um, not just flavor, the texture profiles and all those kind of um, aspects, um, I think was something I thought was really interesting that emerged. Um, and then besides that, let me think, what were some of the... Um, for the most part, South Asian young adults, you know, uh, they had, and this is why I think we found in our later research, is that the dietary experiences of people within the household, even if you live with your family members, it can be very different. Like your mother, your father could have a very set way of eating rice and everything, but you yourself might have so many other things you bring to eat for your for yourself or you go out and eat like you go and eat Chick-fil-A, you go and eat all these other things and your mother would never touch that, right? So there's also that huge like disconnect that occurs within that same household. Um, and I think that's something we want to appreciate and tell uh, health practitioners and other people that you can't generalize the foods within a South Asian household. You're going to have the kids, the older adults, and they're going to be eating very different things. Um, sometimes, sometimes not, sometimes yeah. So there's all that sort of it depends dimension, but that's why formative research and careful uh, analysis on the family dynamics, the dietary behaviors of each person is crucial prior to any tailored dietary intervention approach. Mm. That's so interesting because um, I agree, like being able to understand how to work around, especially I've even experienced it with my parents, like going out somewhere and then trying to recommend one dish over another, you can already see what they gravitate towards and what's more comforting to them. Um, even though, you know, one might be better than the other in terms of like dietary requirements. I was going to actually, I wanted to transition to ask um, another question regarding your dissertation. So uh, it was stated that, you know, you can see the social and cultural emphasis of marriage in Asian American communities and how like lots of young adults are now living with their partners and that does have an effect on their diet. So do you, do you believe or do you see like some specific socioeconomic factors that could be playing a role on Asian American adults? And is there anything that we can control as, you know, we move into our future and we also meet our partners and then start to build like, you know, a family from there? Yeah. So this was particularly in the second day of my dissertation where we did the survey of Asian American young adults and asked them to indicate the different family members in their lives who had the biggest dietary influence. And basically for those in the sample who had a partner um, or a spouse, they often were that number one influence, number two influence. Um, qualitatively, I think the way we saw the, this play out was you're living with your partner. And oftentimes this partner um, had very similar dietary preferences to you. So we were talking earlier about like mothers, fathers, siblings, you know, maybe very different in what they like to eat, their types of eating styles. Um, and you just kind of live in harmony with all these very different kind of eating patterns. Um, but oftentimes um, in a partner, you might, uh, it might even be a part of your, how you look for a partner. It's like, how do they eat? What do they eat? Right. 
generally speaking for like a lot of people would want to think about that in compatibility sense so it's like um you might have very similar dietary patterns and as a, as a result you may be able to reciprocally influence each other um you know like you and your partner might both like going to a certain place to eat um so you know that you know your partner might be buying you food from that place or you know cooking meals that you know you like and you know vice versa so i think there is that strong connection one thing that i think I'm doing in my analysis of this data set, which is this large data set now of 900 people. For some analyses, we're actually not including the partner uh, dynamics. And the reason is because these dynamics, as you can imagine, are so different from those of our mothers, our fathers, our siblings, our grandparents, um, and are worthy of independent exploration in of itself, like our spouses, our partners. In fact, we have actually, we, we've made... Um, We've identified a researcher who does marital and spousal research uh, because I was just like, I don't do this research. Like, I don't know spousal research. I feel like somebody with an expertise in this should look at our data. Um, so that is currently actually being analyzed. Um, just the spousal dynamics and their relationship with different health outcomes, not just diet. Um, and hopefully that's out soon too. And so I'll certainly keep you all posted. But um, besides that, in terms of what we can do to be healthy, right? Um, I think it all boils down to, it sounds cliche at this some point, right? But communication, right? Uh, you know, knowing, uh, you know, your partner's motivations and maybe bringing healthy and unhealthy foods um, and understanding, you know, your partner well. And oftentimes we're able to do that in a better, to a to a better extent than we could for our like siblings or uh, some of our other family members who may be a bit more distant from us. Um, our partners, we might have a much stronger understanding about their, their dietary behaviors, and we'll be able to more proactively leverage what healthy influences they bring to the table, literally, and then what unhealthy influences they can, uh, they can have. And so I think really thinking about that, being intentional about um, eating healthy and also being intentional about reflecting that your diet is not independent of everyone else's, right? Your diet is connected with your partners. And then ultimately, perhaps if you start a family, your children's, right? Thinking about the interconnectedness of these dietary behaviors is, I think, the next step in really making sure uh, you foster dietary behavior change that can help address the growing non-communicable disease burden um, in the South Asian community. Mm. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, and so I think I think I've learned so much about family dynamics in this and there's just a lot. I think when you think of diets, people think it's a quick like fix, like you just go and you alter whatever. And I think another reason for that, um, I don't even want to say, I, I meant to say like, um, let me redo that. Um, I think this is a lot of valuable information that you're sharing. Um, and so especially when it comes to family structure, people consider that, you know, diets are quick, easy fixes. But I think interventions really have to exist from a family level, too. And so I guess what are your some of like your most final takeaways from the research that you've done? Maybe like what's something that you applied into your own life from all of the research that you you've been doing because Rithika spoke earlier about like practicing mm. what you preach so um, yeah how have you internalized maybe some of the stuff and has it actually altered that's your such own a good question now? right it was like has it now let me reflect on that um I think it's gotten me thinking about the ways I am both a healthy and unhealthy influence in my household I think everyone can, nobody can pretend they are one or the other 
um, you know, there's always gray areas um, in how you influence the health of a household. Like I think about for the fact is like I brought up protein bars for a reason because I eat way too many of them. You know those Kirkland protein bars? Like there's a purple one and there's a yes. <laughs> Like a, a blue one, I forget. Uh, I don't even know what, what flavor it is. I just eat them. They're like processed best, but they're still good. Um, so, and I bring them in the house, and then my brother eats them too. And so, like, yikes! Uh, look what I'm doing. Um, but then I, I also check myself because I'm like, I also do things that I try to promote. You know, healthy eating. I when um, we get um, those cup noodles, not cup noodles, like those like, you know, ramen and stuff. Like I will make sure I get ones that say low sodium and stuff. And so I'm the one who buys those stuff usually. Um, so my diet, I I have a very complex dietary acculturation experience because of my exposure to like China and Chinese cuisines and my, like a lot of the, and I lived in China as well. And so I've integrated a lot of that into my life. One example is I drink a lot of green tea. Um, and none of my family members really like it. I've, my mother, I think, is slowly starting to pick that up. And that makes me very happy because, of course, I think one of the most difficult things to change as a South Asian across the board is chai, the chai obsession and the chai culture and its stapleness in our lives. How do you really navigate around trying to get a South Asian to not eat as put as much like milk and tea in their chai? So... Um, or like to switch out chai to something herbal for that matter, or black tea and stuff like that's hard. And so I think it's a low, a slow process. Um, but that's another thing. And then the other thing that's I think in my own life that I've reflected upon that I've I I feel like I've made a healthy diet influence. Actually, it's not a South Asian influence. This is more of an American influence that's come into a lot of our lives. It's just sugary breakfasts. We eat way too many sugary breakfasts, cereals. Like waffles, like I don't like it's, yikes. Um, and there's a lot of great literature on this, on how sugary the American diet is, um, and how sugary the South Asian American diet has likewise become. I think what I found in living in China and being exposed to a lot of Chinese cuisine is that's not the case, particularly in a lot of East Asian dietary. When I was living in China, I used to have these noodle bowls, like I like these like very, very savory and sometimes a bit salty um, noodles, and then like. Uh, these savory dumplings that I used to have uh, before going to work in Beijing. Um, and I now cannot have sugary diet. Like I can't have sugary breakfast. And so I have to have something savory, whether it just be like, if I have bread, I will not put jam on it. I will have some other sort of spread. Um, and I know like my brother finds that very strange, but then like uh, some others, you know, my family members, I think are starting to get used to it. So I think that's what I reflect upon is like my dietary complexities, how they manifest in what I bring to the household and what my uh, other family members see me eat and what of those things they see me eat, they start to pick up themselves or perhaps they don't pick up. And so I think that's what the research has done in my life is kind of put a lens on what I bring to the table, both good and bad, and then reflecting upon what things I could maybe perhaps bring a bit less for um, and what things I could maybe leverage more uh, to uh, be a healthy influence. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I love all of the, the, the green tea thing um, as well as just of what, what you've been sharing about. Um, I, I think I always love it when, when people share how they've personally <laughs> been able to, you know, use their information because then that's the more right. relatable aspect. You know, you can think of that, you know, like I can be that influence now because I there also love green tea. Um, so things like that. Um, so th thanks for sharing that. And I think really the, the research you do is very unique because 
I think our family structures are so like it plays a huge into our a huge part of our like South Asian identity, for example, because it's very different. I think our structure, um, or like the culturally the culture aspects of them compared to other communities. And I think being like a daughter of like immigrants or like all of that stuff, like you, it affects you in so many other ways, but I never really thought of it in terms of diets. And I really can see that and visualize how it does play that role. Um, so thank you for uh, conducting this research. And so, yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I what you said regarding communication is so important. And when you were discussing American breakfast, how they're so sugary, I actually during COVID started researching a lot about nutritions and dietitians. And I saw this post by um, a dietitian that I thought was super interesting, where she was also talking about family dynamics and trying and how you can introduce this conversation of having healthier meals, but instead of subtracting, trying to add to what the meal is already providing so mm. when you um i thought of it because you brought up waffles and normally people just eat waffles as a really like high carb breakfast but instead of you know telling your family members or even for me i have two younger brothers so and they love eating you know like the ego waffles every day um <laughs> you just like trying what can you add to this very high carb breakfast okay so you want protein maybe you can try adding yogurt make a like, yogurt spread um, if you need healthier fats, you can put in like peanut butter, but peanut butter also has protein in it too. And then for fiber, add some fruits. So instead of taking away the idea of having waffles in general and making it like a dietary restriction, you can instead transform meals into something that's more healthy and filling for you to, you know, go on through your day. And, um, I feel like that's been so helpful for me, um, to not view food as something like that's off limits, like a specific dish is off limits, but more what can I add to it so that it keeps me satisfied and I, you know, don't have like a sugar crash or anything throughout the day. Yeah. That's all right. That's um, all right. But thank you. This was a fantastic discussion, Shamir. Uh, we wanted to thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise on such an important topic and breaking down the complexities of how family structure impacts our diet patterns. Uh, your insights have given us so much to think about. So thank you. To our listeners, we hope you've gained some new perspectives on how family dynamics can influence our food choices and how we can take steps to improve our diets. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing all of those actionable insights. I think that was really cool. And also just really a shout out to the research you're doing. Like um, I'll link it in the description too. I think it's a really good movie as well. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Very interesting discussion. Mm. And so for our listeners, tune in next time for another engaging discussion on important health topics. You can join the Brown Women Health community by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Our Instagram handle is at Brown Women Health and our Twitter handle is Brown Women HLTH. Uh, we really hope you'll join to keep up with our content, learn more about each topic and interact with us.